I had managed to get hold of some orange sunshine mm. that was made by by Nick Sand. Mm. And I I was at a friend's house in Buckinghamshire in the countryside. And I I was in the garden waiting for it to take effect. And I I saw some sparks from the turkey farm next door, which arose into the sky and then wove all kinds of intricate patterns. And I thought, oh God, this stuff's stronger than I imagined. And I went to sit down. My friend had um, some bark on the on the record player. Mm. And I settled down to listen to this. And as I did, I closed my eyes and I was immersed in a three-dimensional scene in which there were crystal balls to infinity. Mm. And it wasn't just a vision. It had content as well as um, as well as the uh, appearances and I somehow knew or intuited that each sphere, each crystal sphere reflected every other crystal sphere at the same time. And that this was in some way a reflection of my whole being. And I was enthralled by this for, oh, it it seemed centuries, but it was probably half an hour. <laughs> and um, and it was it was so intriguing and 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 satisfying that it made a great impression on me. A little while later, I was reading a Buddhist text, which actually described this. It described my experience in great detail. And it called it Indra's net. And th this, uh, this notion of Indra's net was, uh, was described and dissected and uh, was a, a fundamental experience described by the, um, the Huayen school of Chinese Buddhism. What astonished me was that it described my experience exactly and was actually written over 900 years earlier. Mm, yeah. So that's when I first put them together, the Buddhism and psychedelics, and decided that together they might make a, a killer package. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by Lama Mike Crowley to discuss his latest book, Psychedelic Buddhism, A User's Guide to Traditions, Symbols, and Ceremonies. In a wide-ranging conversation, Lama Mike talks about the congruence of expression between Buddhism and the psychedelic experience, the history of Soma or Amrita in the Indian Vedic tradition, the role of psychedelics in Vajrayana Buddhism, and the psychedelic initiations of Tantra. 
Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Greetings, Rebel Spirits. Uh, Before the interview with Lama Mike, I wanted to let you know about a couple of upcoming events. First, I'll be presenting again during this year's Rebecoming the One Symposium. I was really excited to participate last year where I offered a presentation on witches, science, and the inquisition of nature. This year, my presentation is on the uh, divine masculine and is titled The Call of the Diamond, Tending the Wild Genius. The presentation will go live on June 12th, uh, that's 2023, and I'll also be participating in a live panel discussion on the divine masculine for the symposium. In conjunction with this, I'll also be offering a paid workshop on Tending the Wild Genius. The workshop is scheduled for 9 a.m. Pacific on Friday, June 16th. For more information on the Rebecoming the One Symposium, go to livingtheonelight.teachable.com. And now, my conversation with Lama Mike Crowley about psychedelic Buddhism. Lama Mike Crowley met a Tibetan Lama, Lama Radha Chimi Rinpoche, in London when he was 18 years old. He became Lama Chime's first student and has continued to study with him to the present day. He took refuge in the five pencil vowels on May 1st, 1970, and after much study and meditation, was ordained as a Lama on January 1, 1989. He is the founder of Amrita Zong, an American extension of his teacher's group and a member of the advisory board of the National Psychedelic Sangha. He is the author of Secret Drugs of Buddhism and joins me today to discuss his latest book, Psychedelic Buddhism. Lama Mike, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you. Well, thank you. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I think I told you uh, when we were trying to arrange this that I've had an ongoing interest in Buddhism and psychedelics, and as a doctoral student, took a course on Buddhism and psychedelics. So I'm really interested to speak with you. And you went way deeper in a lot of material that uh, then was presented in my course. And so I imagine that this will address a couple of things, not just Buddhism, but also a little bit of Hinduism as well. Yeah. 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 So before we begin, I was wondering if maybe you could say a little bit about your background, what got you interested in Buddhism, and maybe when you started making the connections between Buddhism and psychedelics. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a big question. My connection with Buddhism stems from the time when I was, I think, 15, and I was at at high school, and it was late in the year, and there was a week when a neighboring school had a series of lectures. Every day there were like three or four lecturers uh, in the morning, and then there were breakout groups in the afternoon where we could get more involved in what this lecturer was talking about. I was thrilled at this because on four of the five days, there were fairly left-wing lecturers and topics that I knew I could get my teeth into. The only day that, that had nothing of any interest to me at all was the Tuesday. And guess what? That's the day I was allocated. I got to go to this other school 
on the Tuesday. And the only lecture which I felt at all interested in was the one on Buddhism. And I went to the afternoon discussion group thinking that I would just um, play devil's advocate for all of his, uh, his statements and just challenge everything that he said. And I did this, and he came up with excellent answers to everything I, I raised. And at the end of the, the, the group, I approached him and said, where can I learn more about this? This is really interesting. And he said, but I thought you were against it. You got argued with everything I said. And I said, well, yeah, but you gave all the right answers. <laughs> so he gave me the address of the Buddhist Society, which was 58 Eccleston Square in London. And subsequently, every time I went up to London, I went to visit the Buddhist Society, got a handful of free pamphlets and uh, bought a few books. And eventually I moved up to London and started attending weekly meetings about Zen. Mm. I thought that I was going to be a Zen practitioner. I, um, I continued in this manner until a neighbor dropped in one Saturday. He used to go to every jumble sale within reach and he came, he would come back showing us all of his acquisitions. And on this one Saturday, he brought this purba, a Tibetan purba. And he said, yeah, what do you think this is? And I said, oh, my word, that's Tibetan. It's, it's a, a ritual implement which I have described in a book I have here. And he said, oh, surely not. It's, I think it's Mexican. I said, no, 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 let me get the book, I'll show you. And so he, I showed it to him and he, he compared them. He looked at the book, he looked at the fervor and he said, oh, well, fair enough, then you can have it. Mm. And I said, no, I can't possibly afford that. You know, it's a valuable antique and he said, Oh, no, it only cost me five pence. You can have it. And so then I was stuck with this ritual object of which I knew very little apart from a photograph in a book. And I took it to the Buddhist society next time I went. And I spoke to the librarian, Pat Wilkinson, her name was, and she was elderly then. She had done some amazing things in her life. She'd hitchhiked to Burma mm. in the 1920s wow. and, and had studied Buddhism at a, at a monastery there and had even um, taken a, a, a hut in the forest to meditate. Mm. And I asked her if there were any books on Tibetan Buddhism that they had in the library. And she said, well, there are three and you've read them all. <laughs> but she said, there is this Tibetan Lama who has just arrived in London. And if you like, I can arrange a meeting for you. And I said, well, yes, please do. That would be great. And she phoned him up and he was 
He was staying in a Society of Friends students hall. And I went along to see him. She called him up and agreed for us to meet that afternoon. And um, I went to see him. He was a, a very approachable, very a very nice guy. And uh, spoke English very poorly. And I, I, I showed him the purba and he said, oh, yes, keep this on you at all times. And he explained its meaning and the, the connection with uh, the deity Hayagriva and so on. And I agreed to wear it. And I said, is it possible to come back and speak to you another day? And he said, yes, sure, I'll come back next week. And I did for several years, go to see him every Friday. And I spent all Fridays with him for some years because I had I, I was working in a newspaper printers and from Sunday to Friday morning I worked all nights and I would I would knock off work and go to London to wherever he was staying at the time and so I should say that originally before I went to this meeting at the neighboring school that I was an atheist. And that's why I thought that I would be against Buddhism. Turns out that Buddhism is also atheist. It's called a religion, but it doesn't have a God. Mm. And uh, nobody worships the Buddha. They just take his, his, his views and uh, consider them. They, they don't um, attribute any divine nature to the Buddha at all. So that was the beginning of my connection with Tibetan Buddhism. Thank you. Yeah, Buddhism is always the problem child in the room when it comes to <laughs> world religions, because it doesn't fit in the categories very well. I often describe it as philosophy with ritual. That's very good. Yeah. 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 And it also, I like that it challenges our... Not only does it challenge our concepts of religion, but it challenges the concepts of philosophy, because I know Western philosophers, especially academic philosophers that I'm used to, they just always say, oh, no, 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 that stuff's all religion. And I'm like, you know, Western philosophy is kind of full of God talk. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, just technicality for anyone who's listening, you mentioned the purbo. Can yes. you say a little bit more just so that people who are unfamiliar with it, what it is, what the, and the symbolic value of it is? Well, it, in its expression, it has a lot of variation in its, in its presentation. Basically, it's, um, it has three blades that come to a point, like, not a very sharp point, I might add. It's not intended to be a, a weapon of any kind. It frequently has, which is the representation of a thunderbolt, and often has the three heads of higher griva surmounted by a horse's head, which is typical for statues of higher griva. Or it has three other heads without a horse, and it may lack the, the Vajra, the Dorje, 
Vajra is Sanskrit, by the way, Dorje is Tibetan. And so there, there are various, um, various points which are shared between Purvas. That's mainly the, the three blades. And everything else seems to be variable. But it's generally about so big, the kind that you carry about this big. And um, there are larger ones and there are smaller ones. I actually have a tiny one inside this, this gao, which I wear constantly, as that is a, um, a samaya, a damtsik in Tibetan, a, a, an obligation I have because of a, an initiation that said I have to carry a purple with me at all times. Mm. So I, I have this little one in here. Mm. Uh, do you still have the purba that was given to you? Unfortunately not. It seems so I kept it in my my belt, but it unfortunately it slipped out of my grasp while I was at a Rolling Stones concert in <laughs> Park. And but fortunately I came across another one which was I almost identical to the first one I'd found. Mm. And I, I found it it was in the front window of an antique shop in in Devon, I was um, I was on vacation. I was walking down this village high street, and I went, "What?" <laughs> and saw this thing and said, "How much is that?" And they said, "Oh, one more It's it's ten shillings, me dear." And I said, "What?" I got the money out and paid it immediately, and uh, made off with my uh, my. my religious implement yeah well it's interesting that these religious implements are being found in antique shops uh, i imagine that this is after the chinese went into tibet and maybe some oh, yeah. of the tibetans were no actually they they said that it had been given to them by some colonel who had recently died and um left this to his his heirs and they had no idea what it was or what okay. to do with it and gave it to the antique shop so i think i think he possibly picked it up in northern india uh, okay. long before china invaded tibet okay all right yeah and i know that i've spent some time in nepal and sometimes you know you tourists can purchase these things so yes uh, yeah. it was actually nepal was a much better source of ritual objects mm. in the 1960s and early 70s when tourists started going there they manufactured them wholesale right. and and often of very very poor quality they've they've upped their game recently and uh, made much better implements so you started with Zen and then ended up following or practicing Tibetan Buddhism. What about the psychedelic aspect? Ah, well, that started um, before I got interested in, in Buddhism. Hmm. That started when I was about 14 or 15, I think it was, a friend of mine had got hold of a, a magazine from the West Coast of the United States, that is, which gave details of morning glory seeds, 
which it said that you could you could take these seeds and uh, and basically have the same kind of trip that you'd get on LSD. Now we had no LSD at the time, but did well the the, the day that we read this in the magazine, we went out to every shop in Cardiff and bought a packet of morning glory seeds and emptied them out and counted them and it seemed that we had enough for four people to get high on well unfortunately one of our members was tied up with family affairs on that day so we couldn't take it then and then the next weekend he was also tied up and so we we went ahead without him. We we shared the um, the spare seeds between everyone and had. Well, I, you see, I wouldn't do that these days. I wouldn't um, overstep the limits which were set in in print, and um, so we took these seeds, we ground them up, which is an essential point. You have to grind them very fine and soaked them in water and drank the resulting brew. Well, an hour went by and nothing, another hour and nothing, and we we gave up. We decided that the morning glory trip was a, was a myth and didn't do anything at all, and went about our way. We... In, some of us went down the pub, others went home, and um, there were three of us. So one of us went home to to a nearby town, and I I wandered off into the town and eventually called in at, at the pub just as I was beginning to feel the effects. So I, I was walking down a side street of, in Cardiff, and a blackbird started to sing. Mm. And I was utterly entranced by this bird song. And I realized that something was happening. Some, there was some shift in my, my consciousness, which I hadn't experienced before. And I proceeded to walk to the a pub which we often frequented called the Moulders Arms. It isn't there anymore. It's been pulled down. But as soon as I went into the sidebar of the Moulders Arms, I saw one of the the guys that I had um, shared the, the Morning Glory Seed elixir with. And I noticed that the landlady was leaning over the bar trying to get his attention while he was staring into the fire. There was an open fireplace in this bar. And um, she was trying to to find out what he wanted. And he, he eventually looked up and said, oh, right, a cup of coffee would be lovely, thanks. Now, I don't care what they serve in pubs these days in Britain, but a cup of coffee was not on the menu. <laughs> Not in 1965, and uh, I I made my excuses to the 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 the, uh, the barmaid and said, uh, "Oh, thanks. He's had too much already. I'll take him <laughs> home." Now. And uh, we we went back to his place, and I 
thoroughly enjoyed the rest of my my experience. I was a bit stuck at the beginning. I could not figure out what exactly was wrong, but I wasn't enjoying it the way I I could have been. And it came it came to a head when I I went to the bathroom and tried to pee, and found that I couldn't. There was something preventing me, and eventually I, I, I cottoned on to what it was, and I was just holding myself too tight. I was, I was holding on to the non-tripping state. Mm. And as soon as I realized this, the urine flowed into the bowl, and I was, I, I was tripping my socks off. <laughs> and so I had a wonderful time after that. Uh, I found that I couldn't actually look at my friend directly when I spoke to him because his face tended to dissolve into colored lines and it was far too distracting for me to talk to him. Mm. Well, that was my first trip. It was on um, Morning Glory Seeds and was quite spectacular. Wow. Okay. So when when did you start making a connection between psychedelics and buddhism i somehow i think i always had made the connection but there was an incident in 1970 which was just a couple of months after i i'd taken my refuge Hmm. and officially become a buddhist and I had managed to get hold of some orange sunshine mm. that was made by by Nick Sand. Mm. And I I was at a friend's house in Buckinghamshire in the countryside. And I I was in the garden waiting for it to take effect. And I I saw some sparks from the turkey farm next door which arose into the sky and then wove all kinds of intricate patterns and I thought oh god this stuff's stronger than I imagined and I went to sit down my friend had um, some bark on the uh, on the record player Mm. and I settled down to listen to this and as I did I closed my eyes and I was immersed in a three-dimensional scene in which there were crystal balls to infinity. Mm. And it wasn't just a vision. It had content as well as, um, as well as the uh, appearances and I somehow knew or intuited that each sphere, each crystal sphere reflected every other crystal sphere at the same time. And that this was in some way a reflection of my whole being. And I was enthralled by this for, oh, it it seemed centuries, but it was probably half an hour. 
and um, and it was it was so intriguing and 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 satisfying that it made a great impression on me a little while later i was reading a buddhist text which actually described this it described my experience in great detail and it called it indra's net and th this uh, this notion of indra's net was uh, was described and dissected and uh, was a, a fundamental experience described by the um, the huayen school of chinese buddhism what astonished me was that it described my experience exactly and was actually written over 900 years earlier. Mm, so yeah. that's when I first put them together, the Buddhism and psychedelics, and decided that together they might make a, a killer package. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting with the experience of Indra's net. I mean, I'll share this. My partner experimented with LSD when he was younger, like late, you know, like 18, 19s or so. And had this experience and just never touched it again and won't touch it again. And he was trying to explain to me what happened. And at one point he took a piece of paper and he started putting all these dots. He said, well, I, I saw there were all these points and they were all connected with these lines and everything was like reflecting each other. As soon as he did that, I'm like, that's Indra's net. <laughs> <laughs> And one of the issues was he was raised Catholic, but he had this experience. And at the end of the experience, he said that he was an atheist and it scared him this experience oh. so much that he never touched psychedelics again. Oh. Um, but I find it being an atheist. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't know how he looks at it quite now I, I maybe more of agnostic definitely a re, yeah, i guess it would depend on how you define atheist you know definitely a rejection of the biblical god put it that way mm -hmm. um, but i find it really interesting how there is a connection in terms of experience and you and it's not just with lsd or the, the morning glory seeds you mention in the book a woman who was on MDMA ecstasy. And uh -huh. in her experience, she was using the word unborn to right. describe the, your quote here is the underlying no thingness of reality. So it's always remarkable to me how Buddhism seems to express a lot of these psychedelic experiences. Right. I have found a remarkable congruence of expression between Buddhism and the experiences of psychedelics. Unfortunately, a lot of normal, nominal Buddhists, people who call themselves Buddhists, are also very much against any psychedelic use. The Buddhist society in London actually decreed that if anybody had taken LSD, they were immediately forbidden from attending any Buddhist sessions there at the Buddhist society. 
this this presented a little bit of a problem because one of their favorite teachers the buddhist society was alan watts <laughs> and and when he presented oh, he published his his book the joyous cosmology which is all about psychedelics they were completely phased. They had no idea what to do with this. Were they going to allow Alan Watts back in? Mm. Um, and um, they definitely weren't going to put the joyous cosmology in their library. But, uh, well, fortunately for them, he didn't come back to the United Kingdom and didn't ask them why they weren't allowing him to speak there anymore. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that in the United States, at least, and I imagine this is probably similar to the UK, is that a lot of people who came to Buddhism after having experimented with psychedelics, because it's the thing that helped them make the most sense of what they were experiencing in these psychedelic states. Mm -hmm. so, so it's really fascinating to me that a Buddhist organization will be like, no, you're not welcome here. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But mind you, mind you, at the same time, the most of the people going to these Buddhist society meetings were, were middle-aged and elderly women with plenty of money. Uh, they were middle and upper class people and and just wore... Buddhism as if it was the latest fashion. Mm. Uh, however, Trungpa Rinpoche lived in London mm -hmm. in a squat with a bunch of hippies, <laughs> and he took LSD with these hippies. And it was legal at the time. It right. was still legal. And he would go to the Buddhist society and tell these uh, uptight matriarchs, you should really take LSD. <laughs> Mind you, he was he was not a proselyte for LSD. He actually told some of the hippies he was living with that they shouldn't take LSD because they didn't know how to handle it. Mm. He also he also told them that they had similar things in Tibet, mm. and some of these uh, Dutsi Rilbu that he he mentioned that's that's Amrita pills. Dutsi is Tibetan for Amrita, and uh, Rilbu is a pill. And he said that the Dutsi Rilbu that they have in Tibet is in fact stronger than LSD. Mm. I actually met somebody near here. It was um, just the other side of Weaverville from here is a, a Tibetan monastery called Chaktub Gompa. And it was started by a Tibetan teacher called Chakdo Rinpoche. And um, he had this amazing place built with uh, stupas and, and prayer wheels and all kinds of stuff that they, they'd assumed as he was building this immense place that he would, uh, he would continue to, 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 to live there. But as soon as it was all built, he left for Brazil and said, I'm going to start another one in Brazil now. <laughs> and, and I've actually met members of the Brazilian Chagdut Gompa. But anyway, 
his main student, uh, who was ordained as a lama, was leaving because the, the people who were in charge, the, the, the people with the money, didn't approve of this, this lama, the, 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 the young American lama, and tried to elbow him out. Anyway, he moved to San Francisco, and before he left... He asked the people living at the Gompa to come and eat all the, the food in the pantry and drink all the, the, the bottles of wine that he had there. But the guy who told me this, this story said that at the time, he, the person who was telling me, was an alcoholic. And so the, 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 the wine he, he'd been given was just an appetizer for him. And he went looking for, um, for more alcohol around the place. And so he was digging around in the kitchen and found this medicine bottle. Hmm. And he removed the cork and sniffed it and thought, yeah, that's alcohol, all right, and drank it all up. Now... What that was, was concentrated Amrita. Hmm. That was for future empowerments. Hmm. And it was intended to be diluted and shared between 100 people or so. But this guy <laughs> drank the entire medicine bottle of, of Amrita and tripped for five days. Wow. <laughs> he, he, he had constant visions of Dakinis and so on, giving him teachings. And, and the Lama had to tell him, like, if, if you're given any teachings by the Dakinis, please disregard it. You haven't had the uh, appropriate uh, initiations. Mm. I, I really don't see that the initiations are at all necessary if you've got teachings from the Dakinis themselves. <laughs> but, but, but that is one of the few hints that I've had that, um, that, that Tibetan lamas do actually know about and use psychedelics. Another, another lama is Bhutanese lama, who has, he's been to Brazil and, uh, and taken ayahuasca with his students and and held a Ghana chakra, a a ceremony which you are supposed to take Amrita mm. and um, perform this ritual afterwards. I've seen a, a video online. It's on YouTube. I can't remember what it's called, but you could look for his name, Zongsa Chensi Rinpoche. And this was a, a talk he gave in Mexico. And in it, he, he says a number of remarkable things like, yes, of course, we use um, psychedelics in, in Tibetan Buddhism. And if it, it's, they, they are described in certain tantras. And if you want to know where they are, I can give you the page numbers. <laughs> And he, he says, like, halfway through this, this talk, I was given a, a dose of mescaline about two hours ago, but it's not working yet. 
Well, that's because he was expecting it to work in an hour or so, like mm. uh, like most psychedelics. Mescaline actually takes longer right. to work. That's how you know you've got real mescaline and not not LSD, like um, a lot of the so-called mescaline that was around in the early 1970s was actually LSD. So there are a couple of questions that come out of everything you just said. And this is where it gets tricky because I know one question is going to lead us one way and another is going to lead us another. But I'm going to start with the Amrita. And the you called it the Duti... Rubud? Rilbud. Rilbud. Okay. So, and I know that this is an incredibly loaded question because I want to ask, what kind of psychedelic is that? And I know that there is a history to the Amrita that you address, especially in the secret nugs of Buddhism. It's also in the psychedelic Buddhism as well. But this goes all the way back to the Vedic tradition with Soma, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So let's, let's dig in a little bit and maybe we'll do a little bit of history as we go through this Uh, to clarify, you know, I can't hope that, you know, I'm a teacher. And so I'm always thinking about how to best present material to, to, to my audience or to my students. So let's start with Soma. And Soma in the Vedic tradition, I know there has been a question as to what it is. I think everyone or almost everyone is in agreement that it was some kind of psychedelic. I was going to have my copy of the Rig Veda here just in case, but I will have students read some of the hymns to Soma. And there is no question Mm -hmm. uh, that there is something wild going on with Soma. Well, We know that the Indo-European people who came from the Indo-European heartland in southern Russia, they went east of the Caspian Sea and south. Now, for about a hundred years, they they lived in close proximity to the Oxus Valley civilization, which unfortunately isn't generally known as the Oxus Valley civilization. It goes by the the, uh, god-awful name of the Bactria Margiana Archaeological Complex. Wow. But but these people we know took some kind of psychoactive substance in religious rituals. Well, the... Indo-Europeans picked this up from them and carried it into, well, they they split up. Um, one group went west into what is now Iran, and the other went into northwest India. Now, the Iranians seem to have used Paganum Hamala, hmm. which is Syrian rue. Mm-hmm. And that, that is a very potent monoamine oxidase inhibitor. So there was probably some other substance that they took with it. It has been suggested that it was ephedra, mm-hmm. the plant which contains an, an analog of amphetamine. 
And there have been other suggestions. Unfortunately, the Iranian use of uh, psychedelics was completely obliterated when the Muslims invaded. Mm. They, they left uh, the Indian Parsis. The Parsis are uh, Zoroastrians who live in the area of Bombay. Now, the, the, the group of five tribes which migrated into India used something else. It was not the same as the, the Iranian drugs. And it is most likely that their, in, their, their own indigenous drug was Amanita muscaria, the, the red mushroom with white spots. And the, the, the Rig Veda speaks only of one sacrament. However, in the later Vedas, like the Yajur Veda, there are three versions of the Yajur Veda, all completely different from each other, which are known as the white Yajur, the black Yajur, and the partridge-colored, very colored Yajur Veda. Now, in in the white Yajur Veda, it says that the, the, there are two kinds of Rudra. Now, Rudra is used as a, a kind of um, apotheosis of the soma drug itself mm. and and they say that one kind of rudra is found by the uh, the girls who fetch water from the spring and another is is known to the boys who who look after the cattle now they describe these as the ones found by the, the, the girls who fetch water from the spring was red rudras, and the, the ones known to the boys who kept the cattle were blue rudra. And so we might assume that these are Manita muscaria and Psilocybe cubensis. It is more than likely that they encountered Psilocybe when they moved into India. There is a um, there is an Indian historian, archaeologist historian called uh, Mahadevan, who claims that the, the, the seals of the Indus Valley civilization, which is an ancient civilization in northwest India, which collapsed when the, when the ground became saturated with salt, it's a long story, but it's it's due to the um, the synclasis of the of the Himalayas. India smashed into the Asian continent, threw up the Himalayas, and the the area to the west and east of the Himalayas is actually sinking. Mm. And this is this made the Indus Valley civilizations fields drop be, below sea level and got saturated with salt. Anyway, the, the, before that happened, they seem to have been aware of the Psilocybe cubensis mushroom. Mahadevan says that there is, a, there is a, a contraption, if you like, which is depicted on the Indus Valley seals, which actually shows how the, 
the the juice of the cubensis would have been extracted mm. as he he has about 900 examples of seals which show a particular device with in some of them it shows drops of liquid falling hmm. from this device which he says is the extract of the psilocybe cubensis so that's that's probably what they walked into and at the time the forests were retreating hmm. and amanita muscaria requires a host tree that they they normally grow around certain trees but these trees were becoming more and more rare but at the same time they had um, a country which was rich in in cattle and psilocybe cubensis grows on cowshit and so the later vedas like the ajurveda have references to both mushrooms Wow. So you mentioned that in the Yajurveda, there was, you said it was the apotheosis of Soma, Rudra. Right. Now, is not Rudra also considered a early form of Shiva? Yes. Now he is. Okay. But in those days, they only had Rudra. Mm-hmm. And they encountered Shiva when they entered India. Mm. Shiva was already worshipped in India, and if you look at um, at some of the early depictions of Shiva, and uh, for instance, in the in some very early depictions of Shiva, he has one leg. Mm. It's not that he has one leg cut off and the other remains. No, he just has from his waist down. He just has one leg, like the stem of a of a mushroom. Mm. Now. Rudra was the original Aryan god that they equated to Shiva Hmm. when they encountered Shiva in India. And soon Rudra was seen as just an older version of Hmm. of Shiva. But they were originally two separate gods, Rudra representing Amanita Muscaria and Shiva, the Psilocybe Cubensis. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I am familiar with Rudra. One of the epithet, this is the only epithet I know of Rudra is, I think it's Rudra the Terrible or the <laughs> Frightening. Uh, the Terrifier, yes. Yeah. Now, if he is the the apotheosis of Soma, are, are there any other epithets for him that are less terrifying? Lots, Lots <laughs> actually, yeah. He is also called the the howler, the weeper. There are there, there are several epithets for him in the Vedas, hmm. which is probably the best source. As later right. than the Vedas, he gets confused with Shiva. Right, right, okay, yeah, th- yeah. I guess it's a kind of a form of syncretism, I would imagine. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and so when the the you know the people were talking about the Aryans here, you know, coming from the Russian steppe lands, the Amanita muscaria is very common there, and I know it's still used in their shamanic traditions in, in that well, area. Well, much farther, much farther east. Okay. In Siberia, it is. Yeah, yeah, also, yeah. also there is a tradition in Afghanistan 
of of Amanita muscaria use. Okay. And it's um, you see, parts of Afghanistan only converted to Islam about a hundred, maybe hundred and twenty years ago, hmm. and they they kept their old um, traditions up to that point. In fact, there is a there is a book which was written about the 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 pagan cultures of Afghanistan. It was written in the late 19th century, and within 10 years of it being published, all the, the, the societies it had described were swept away by the Islamic traditions of, mm. of Afghanistan. But there are still places in the north of Afghanistan which use Amanita muscaria to this day. Mm. Mm. Interesting. So, and yeah, it's interesting with Afghanistan because we do tend to think of it as being almost exclusively Muslim, but it wasn't that long ago that the Taliban were blowing up statue, uh, Buddhist statues. That's true. You know? yeah. So there, yeah. there, there is a remnant, you know, it's not, has not always been Muslim. And I think that's something right. really important yeah. to keep in mind. And even, even in the old days when Iran was Zoroastrian, it was only the aristocracy, the aristocracy were Zoroastrian. Hmm. The, the, the main body of the people were Buddhist. Hmm. And we can find evidence of this in place names throughout Iran and even as far west as Saudi Arabia. Mm. There are places on the uh, uh, the east coast of Saudi Arabia which have distinctly Buddhist names. Mm. Wow, yeah. So the Aryans, they eventually, uh, they used, you know, the Soma was part of the Vedic rituals. It was likely the Amanita muscaria, but as you said, you know, the, there was a environmental change and they then seemed to replace it with the psilocybin, the cubensis mushroom. But yet now scholars are like, well, we, you know, a lot of them are, you know, they just kind of shrug their shoulders, raise their hands. We don't really know what the Soma was because well, some ridiculous suggestions as to what yeah. Soma was. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, well, I know that I, I think it was Watson who made the argument that it was the Amanita muscaria, if yes. I'm right. The other one that seemed to make a little bit of sense to me, someone had suggested, and you kind of addressed this in the book, was there was a combination of the ephedra, poppy, and the cannabis. But you kind of rejected that, especially the poppy, because not all the poppies are psychoactive. But when I but when I heard that, you know, ephedra, poppy, and cannabis, I'm like, yeah, those three together, that'll <laughs> you'll see God then. <laughs> well, we also have drinking vessels from the Scythians, mm. who were an Indo-European people who were nomads, nomads in Central Asia. And some of these drinking vessels have been analyzed recently they had a residue in them which was analyzed and found to contain traces of both opium and cannabis mm. and so it, it seems that they 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 like the combination of these two yeah that would knock you out though oh, <laughs> it yeah, seems yeah, yeah. yeah. 
but I guess the the point I was trying to get at is that at some point the soma became something else. It became something that wasn't necessarily psychoactive. Now, I don't know when that happened. Was that with Muslim incursions into India? Because that seems to be fairly late date. Um, I oh, think that, that was, was about that a was thousand about or something. That was 1400 yeah, um, yeah. AD. Right, right. But as early as um, as 1000 BC, we have the commentaries on the Vedas called the Brahmanas, mm. which describe several drugs, not just Amanita muscaria, not just Psilocybe cubensis, but also they, they, they don't give any names that we can relate to, but mm. they, they, for instance, speak of the Soma vine, Mm. Um, a, a a climbing plant mm. which is or can be used as a substitute for soma. I think that this is probably the what is nowadays called Hawaiian baby wood rose. Mm. It's not from Hawaii. It, we we know it as growing in Hawaii nowadays, but originally it was. It was found in the eastern parts of India. And uh, th this contains lysergic amides, which are exactly what's found in morning glory seeds, but in a more concentrated form. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I, I was just curious as to if you have any ideas why the... Soma became not psychedelic because I know now, you know, there's still, it's in use, but it's not a psychoactive substance. And I'm just curious how we got from, you know, people, you know, the long haired ascetics saying the gods and claiming immortality to essentially here's a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I am not exactly sure why it died out. But it was, it, it, it's possible that it didn't die out and was mm. kept under wraps for a mm. long time. And when the Vajrayana came about in about the fourth century AD, uh, then it was, it was again being used by a religion, but it was no longer the, the, the sole province of the Brahmins, who, mm -hmm. by the way, were the people who did religion. Mm -hmm. You paid these people to do religion for you. Mm -hmm. You didn't have a religion. That was a, that's a modern concept. In those days, it was just the Brahmin priests who did the religion for you. And they, they were the ones who took the Soma. So it's a, it's that you've hit on a, a mystery there that it's not actually known why they stopped using the original soma and what happened to it in the interim between say 1200 or a thousand bc and um, when they were using it and then they stopped for a thousand and maybe 1400 years and then it suddenly erupts again in the the vajrayana mm. 
But it wasn't only the Vajrayana, there was also all the Indian religions, the, you know, the, the cults of Shiva, of Vishnu, of the the goddess worshippers, and, and so they, they they didn't have a thing called Hinduism. Right. Not until not until the, the, the British colonized India, basically. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, when I teach my world religion classes. That's actually the first thing I tell students when we get to the Indian religious traditions. Because notice I use that phrase, Indian religious traditions, because I tell them there's no such thing as Hinduism. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, what? (laughs) And so I'm able to kind of go into and unpack what happened and how that concept came about exactly and there, there was there was a period in the 19th century when indians said we've got to get together and yeah. fight the, the colonists yeah and that's when hinduism was mm-hmm. born yeah it was a legal construct <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah so oh uh, by the way by the yeah. way you know the, the the jain religion yeah yeah that only recently got recognized by the, the the Indian authorities as as being a separate religion that was oh, wow. equivalent to Buddhism and so on. Wow. Yeah. My understanding was that you would automatic if you were born in India, you would automatically be identified as a Hindu unless you specify otherwise. Right. Yeah. And I always also like to share this with students because I like to get them thinking in terms of challenging the concept of religion in general. But I tell them that I was in Kathmandu and I went to Pashapati, the main Shiva temple. Oh, right. And, you know, you can go around the grounds, but there's a sign that says non-Hindus not allowed. And Uh you have someone in a little booth, you know, and most of the people at places like that, you know, they'll speak some English. And so I asked, I'm like, well, how do you know? How do you know I'm not Hindu? Maybe I believe in Shiva. Maybe, you know, I accept, you know, karma and dharma and all this stuff. And the guy just laughed at me a little bit. And he's like, I can tell you're not a Hindu because you're not brown. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, that's a, yeah. yeah, yeah, but it gets students away from thinking about religion just in terms of belief, right? That it's right. a big, big concept. So in this sort of history that's going on, you've mentioned Vajrayana and I want to get us there, but we've got Buddhism that I know there, there are questions as to the dating of the Buddha I think I usually give a date of around 450 BCE, maybe around 500 or so, that axial age, right? That's that's if you take the Burmese dating oh, of the Buddhists, yeah. okay. of the Buddha. Right. The, the Tibetans actually put him back much further than that. Mm-hmm. The Tibetans place him in the era of the Indus Valley civilization, about 2500 BC. Okay. right. Um, which, which actually makes sense if you consider the the original religion to be like the progenitor of uh, Buddhism and Jainism. Mm. I don't know how much you know about Mahavira. Well, I know his story is suspiciously similar to the story of Siddhartha. Yes, uh, yes, with one tiny difference. 
that he had a daughter mm. and Siddhartha had a son. Right. That's about the only difference between the two stories. Yeah. The only other difference that I can spot is that Mahavira was a little bit more extreme when he left. At least the version I heard, you know, is that he ripped out his hair with his hands. Oh, yes. And they do I think that still they do that every every year. They they pull their hair out. The wow. monks and nuts. Yeah. And I think Siddhartha just shaved his head. <laughs> yes. 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 So yeah, that that yeah, but yeah, they're remarkably similar. And there's still so much that we don't know about most of these traditions. And that's what makes them really interesting. And I see connections with Buddhism, with yoga. Uh, but yoga can also be taken back, I think, to the Indus Valley civilization. There's some really good... Well, there, uh, there are some seals which right. show someone sitting in the lotus position. Mm -hmm. And he also has a strange headdress on, which right. no one's explained yet. Yeah, um, yeah. But it definitely seems to be like the the lord of animals which is a, a an epithet of shiva right yeah you're referring to i think what they what's typically called the proto shiva seal yes yes yeah, absolutely yeah. there's more than one by the way there are several right. seals right. which show this character mm. yeah so um regardless you know you have buddhism that I, I think the way it's always present or usually presented is that it merged out of Hinduism, although that may be not quite right, given if we take the Buddha back so far. But nevertheless, at some point, it becomes fairly popular. But then we get some changes. There are a lot of changes within the Indian tradition. The There seems to be a rejection of the Vedic tradition. And I think this is where we start getting the, like the Upanishads and ideas yeah. of the gurus and whatnot. And then eventually, and then you get the Bhakti, the Bhaktic traditions. Um, mm -hmm. But then we get this tantric aspect. And right. which, that, which, that, uh, that's where I want to focus right now. Well, that arises in all Indian religions around right. the same time, around 400 AD. Right, right. And it eventually enters the monastic tradition of Buddhism around mm -hmm. 700 right. uh, AD. Yeah. Um, so so I, I want to clarify things because, it, and I will be completely honest, Tantra still baffles me. And it, and it baffles me in all of its forms. And I've read several books on Tantra, but I'm still totally baffled. And, and I also want to be clear to the listeners that a couple of things. One, Tantra is not how most Westerners think about it. It's not just about having seven hour orgasms. It, it, and also when we talk about Buddhism, Buddhism isn't a monolithic thing. There are sort of different schools or branches of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And so those you, I think you refer to basic Buddhism. Would that be synonymous with Theravada? Not quite. It's. I'm really speaking about the 18 schools, okay, which existed in India. Ah, okay. Um, when the Mahayana first formed, there were these other schools which mm. they they said we're rejecting that, mm. and we'll call that the lesser vehicle Hinayana. Yeah. 
Yeah, Hinayana, well, yeah. We are the 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 great vehicle which is right. open to everyone. Right. Because originally, of course, Buddhism was only for monks and nuns. Right. The, the right. lay people could worship by giving monks and nuns food and clothing. Mm. Okay, and then the 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 other one is the uh, Vajrayana, which is always associated with Tibetan Buddhism. But nowadays, you, yeah, nowadays it right, was right. Indian, right? And that's what I wanted to ask you about is if you could discuss that a bit because I found that very fascinating, and I've always known that the Tibetans look to India for their knowledge of Buddhism for the most part. And we're sending monks down into Buddha uh, into India, and so Vajrayana has its roots in Indian tantra. And Absolutely, yeah. So I was uh, wanting to ask if you could maybe go into that a little bit because it's so rich and so fascinating. Well, there were um, there were at least four phases of Vajrayana in India. Mm-hmm. And some some cultures like um, China and Japan only seem to get the earliest phase of um, Vajrayana, and so we can see in the the Tendai tradition of Japan that it has a very fully expressed version of early Vajrayana, and um, the the tradition did seem to get much more much much more evolved in the later versions of vajrayana and some some of the later versions like um, dzogchen and uh, mahamudra in tibet seem to have very little to do with early vajrayana except that they um, they they still seem to use psychedelics um, but they they have no use for the for the deities and so on of of early Vajrayana. It's it's interesting that Vajrayana in fact imported Shiva many many times. Many they they did it again and again. They called him many different things, like as you mentioned Avalokiteshvara, but also like. The like Vajra Bhairava, for instance, which is a, a buffalo-headed deity, which seems to have some very interesting connections to mushrooms, which grow only on buffalo dung, mm. which are in fact much more potent than the ones that grow on cow dung. Yeah. yeah. So the I, I want to kind of look at tantra though um because uh-huh. it is so kind of confusing so look at tantra and then its relationship to vajrayana and so my understanding of tantra this is the way i've come to think about it and uh, you can correct me and uh, go on but it is the way i usually describe it to students is that it was kind of considered to be a new religion for a new age that the situation in the world was so bad that we were in the Kali Yuga Mm -hmm. that it required 
some kind of extreme in order to escape from or find release from this, you know, samsara, from this endless cycle of suffering. And I think that the problem, not I don't want to say the problem, but what's tricky about Tantra is that it is esoteric. It's something that you have to be initiated into. You have to have a guru who will give you the secrets, who can explain the text. Because you can read a tantric text, but unless you've been initiated into it, it's not going to be make a lot of sense. And I right. think that is carried over into Vajrayana, where yes. I think you use the you say that the texts are written in like a twilight language. Um, right. That Sanjay you have to have. Awesome. Yes. Yeah, that you have to have the meat, the, the 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 yeah, you have to have a guru to tell you what it means. Not um, only that, though, you have to have the guru to tell you what order to read it in. Okay. Because the tantras and tantric texts are—it's as if somebody shuffled the pages, mm. and so what you read doesn't really make any sense at all. Mm. You have to know, oh, you read page 13 and then page 7 and then page 9 and so on. Hmm. Okay. So what did I get wrong or what did I miss in my description of Tantra? Well, Tantra itself is a is a huge subject because right. it's it it covers the Shivite agamas and the buddhist tantras and the the jain texts and the, uh, the 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 goddess worshiping texts they all seem to be hitting different points in the in in this message and for instance there is um there is the use of sex hmm. to achieve enlightenment this has been seized on by certain Westerners as being the only form of Tantra which is to be taught. And in the East, it's just, well, that's something we do. And Tantra uses everything we do mm. to bring you to enlightenment. And sex is one of those things that... Uh, it, it may be um, disparaged among the, the Westerners, but we know it's just another part of life. Mm. Um, so it's, um, it's difficult to describe Tantra at all, in that, given that there are really so many different takes on it from all the different Indian religions. Yeah, it seems like one of the things that's central to it, though, is the initiation yes. and and that kind of initiatory ritual. And is it correct to say that it's with Tantra that we see a kind of rebirth, possibly, of the use of Soma or Amitra? And Absolutely. those two terms are synonymous, right? I would. Um, well, yes. Except in the later Buddhist tradition, which uses Panchamrita, which is fivefold mm. Amrita, and there are five five drugs which are used, which are given 
various coded names in um, in the text of elephant, dog, cow. What else is that? Something else. And human. Is human is the last one. Horse. I think it's right. horse. Anyway, some Tibetan texts, though, kind of um, spill the beans on this because they say that, oh, if you can't get cow, you can use peacock. <laughs> Which is like, wait a minute, I, I, cows are much more common than peacocks. What are you talking about? Well, I think that they mean in the, in the case of cows and peacocks, they, they're using the fact that Psilocybe cubensis grows on cow dung. Mm. And a poetic, a very, very common poetic trope for peacock is Nila Kanta, which means blue, blue throat or blue stem. Mm. And um, it's, it's, the peacock has a blue throat, but the um, Psilocybe cubensis mushroom has a blue stem. And so it has kind of given us a way into the, the, the five meats of, mm. of, of later Tantra. So we can tell what one of them was. We, we, we're still um, trying to decipher everything for the... Now, in, in Buddhist Vajrayana, at any rate, there are seven levels of secrecy. Seven. And so they're not going to tell you immediately that we're using psychedelic mushrooms here. That's probably that's probably level six or seven. But nevertheless, even with, without being told, you can actually work some stuff out from from what we have been told. Okay. So kind of going back to the story that you told of the fellow who drank the Amrita. Yes. What was it exactly that he was drinking? Was he drinking who some knows? kind of, some we kind of press? No, we can't tell. Presumably Lama Doje, who's, who actually owned this, the, the medicine bottle full of Amrita. I would imagine that he knew, but it's not been divulged to me at any rate by, by any Lama's, but I hope that one day somebody will tell me. Right. So, yeah. And they also come in a pill form. And I'm really surprised mm -hmm. that no one knows what these are. <laughs> right, 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 right. Utsi Robu, uh, Amrita pills. Yeah. And um, they, these are often, or I won't say often, but sometimes left in caches of texts and so on, which are called terma. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the normal expectation of a tema is that it will be a text that was written by Padmasambhava. Some are written by other people, Tree Song Detsen, for instance, but that's a relatively few. Most of them were written supposedly by Padmasambhava and, and hidden by Yeshit Sojil, his consort. But also with these with these texts are often found like pills or implements like purvas. So is it safe to say then that I guess that psychedelics are at kind of the core 
or foundation of Vajrayana. Yes. Uh, in, yeah. Mm. I would definitely say that. Although in the West, Vajrayana initiations are open to the public. Mm. In in the East, this would be very rare. There would be certain empowerments which were open to the public, like, for instance, Kala Chakra. Mm. That would be open to thousands of people, and that initiation would be given once in the lifetime of a Dalai Lama. The, the current Dalai Lama has given the Kala Chakra empowerment several times. Right. But that's not actually traditional. Yeah, I think I've actually seen videos of him performing that. Right. Uh, yeah. So one of the questions that I have, well, let me see here where I want to go. I'll go ahead and ask this. And, and I'm sure that you had, this is the common question that you get asked probably in most of your interviews is that aren't Buddhists not supposed to take drugs? because it is a violation of one of the precepts if they've taken the precept mm. you it's quite possible to be a buddhist without taking one of the precepts mm. if you take all five you will take uh, and you can take as many uh, as you like up to five from none to um, to all five now the the, the precept which most people take as prohibiting psychedelics actually says that you shouldn't drink alcohol. Right. It doesn't say anything about psychedelics or any other drugs. And um, I would say if you, if you want to be a Buddhist and don't want to, uh, to take psychedelics, that's fine and that's up to you. But it's not really part of Buddhism. Mm. It's It's been construed that way, for instance, by uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, who says that the, the, the pros proscription on alcohol should be extended to all drugs. Well, that's fine for him. He, was a, he wasn't a Vajrayanist. He was a, 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 a Zen practitioner. And um, most Zen practitioners don't take psychedelics. But I, I think that uh, there, there should be no proscription of psychedelics for Vajrayanists. Yeah. Well, the way that I've often thought about this is that there's such an emphasis in, I think, most forms of Buddhism on the mind that it doesn't really make a lot of sense to prohibit psychedelics because I can understand prohibitions on something that clouds the mind. Yes. But psychedelics, you know, the word literally means the kind of the manifestation of the mind. Right. So, so it seems to me that if you're a Buddhist, a psychedelic, taking a psychedelic is kind of the route to go, that it can give you additional uh, insights. There are, there are lamas, as I said, Zongso Chense Rinpoche, who, who use psychedelics mm. and have, have done so with their students and encourage their students to do so. Yeah, and I know we're starting to run out of time here, but I did have a few other things. Oh, if you go don't ahead. Mind. Okay, so I like one of the things that you do is you, and you don't have to go through these, but I liked how you made connections 
to both the four noble truths and the eightfold path in regards to psychedelics. Uh, one of the things that really caught my attention was in the four noble truths, the, the second one. So the first one's always, you know, their suffering, dukkha, and then the cause of suffering. And this is dissatisfaction is what you wrote it at. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that came to my mind, especially in terms of, I'll say plant medicines. So this could be something like mushrooms or even ayahuasca is that one of the things that frustrates the experience sometimes I think is not dissatisfaction, but the expectations that oh. you can't go in. And I was thinking, ah, expectations, that would kind of be in connection to this dissatisfaction. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think so. You shouldn't really do anything with an expectation of what is likely to be the outcome. You can, uh, at least you have to remain open to whatever happens mm -hmm. and uh, just just deal with it and deal with it in the openest way possible. But yeah, yeah, that's, that, that, that's, that's how I see it at any rate. Okay. I also thought it was really valuable to think about meditation here. And I like that you give a really concrete definition of meditation because people talk about meditation and mindfulness and whatnot, but I don't know how often it's really understood, but you, wrote that's nothing more than becoming aware of the mind and its activity. And I thought, yep, that's straightforward. And I like that. Um, <laughs> and it seemed to me that meditation would be a good practice to instill in yourself before taking psychedelics. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And if you wanted to prepare yourself for a psychedelic session, I can't think of a better way than a meditation session first you can also take you can also meditate after you've taken the psychedelics mm -hmm. yeah and, and I, during I, think I, I suggest that in the book yeah 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 before after and during <laughs> yeah 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 it could be yeah, yeah so you mentioned this i wanted to make sure that we've covered the ground here and the terms but earlier in the conversation you mentioned the dakinis and I was wondering if you could say who or what the Dakinis are and what is their relationship to the psychedelic sacraments in Vajrayana? Well, this word Dakini in Sanskrit and Kandroma in Tibetan actually means several different things. In, in modern usage in India, Dakini generally means a witch. Mm. It can mean this in Buddhist use, but it can also mean the impulse within yourself which directs you towards enlightenment. Mm. In other circumstances, it actually means the psychedelic, mm. the plant. There is a there's a description of a, a a Tibetan of my own lineage who ate certain plants and and was open to the dakinis, which were another expression of that plant. Mm. And um, he actually founded a branch of the kaju after he saw 
nine dancing dragons in the sky mm. after he'd, he'd consumed this, this plant, which was also a Dakini. And he, he founded the sect known as the Drukpa Kaju, which is the dragon Kaju. The Kaju is the ear-whispered lineage, which I've, I've become part of myself. So it's very difficult to say what Dakinis are because it depends on context, very much on context. In some contexts, it's a, as I say, a witch. In others, it's a, a plant mm. which you can eat. And the, the most profound meaning of Dakini is that within yourself, which directs you towards enlightenment. Is something which we all have within us, and we we should attune ourselves to it. Okay, so it, yeah, so it seems like they can that they have multiple meanings. I like that it's something within us because that also I think speaks to all the deities in Vajrayana Buddhism. Because uh-huh. Buddhism, like you said at the beginning, Buddhism is known as being atheistic, but then when we get to Vajrayana, there are like hundreds of deities. But none of them are to be taken seriously. Right. None right. of them are to be taken. Well, you can take them seriously, but you shouldn't believe in them as actually existing separately from yourself. Right, right. Yeah, I always see them as kind of archetypal. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And so we can see the Dakinis in that way, but I also like that they are so connected to these entheogens, these you know psychedelic plants, because Absolutely. I know... Many of these plant medicines are associated with a spirit like ayahuasca. You know, you have mother ayahuasca, which is seen as a entity, you know, that, you know, that is the ayahuasca, but is somehow a little bit separate from the ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the Dakinis function in a very similar way. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Okay. So one of the final questions I wanted to ask you, you had mentioned the peacocks and, and I don't know if you can answer this, but it really started getting my, my thought process going because in relation to the peacocks and the symbolism of them, and you've already talked about how you connected them to the psilocybin mushrooms, there seemed to be something else at play and the connections that you were bringing up was with alchemy. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know if I can express this or phrase this question the way I want to, but I was really interested in this connection with Tantra and alchemy and some of the symbols, because it seems like there's a lot of similarities going on. And I know that there was Indian alchemy, and I don't know how it related to Western alchemy, um, if it was related at all, if it was its own branch. But I was just curious if you could add any additional insight into that. Well, there are enough um, similarities between Western and Indian alchemy that we can postulate that they had some connection, at Mm. least in in ancient times. Mm. And you have um, stories like 
the the tale of Vyali in the the stories of the eighty four Mahasiddhas. Mm. Well, eighty three Mahasiddhas were Buddhists. Mm. Vyali was a Hindu, mm. and it tells how he almost ruined himself looking for the secret to the alchemical elixir and eventually he finds it there are lots of clues as to what it was it seems to have been amanita muscaria and eventually he's um, he's aided by his his consort who was originally a prostitute and he finds what this this amrita this elixir was and goes off to some far off island and and lives there with his his wife and his horse his horse was also dosed with amrita by the way so his <laughs> horse is immortal and he he is immortal and his wife is immortal and eventually they get visited by nagarjuna who is not the same although tibetans believe that he is not the same as the first century AD philosopher by the name of nagarjuna there was another one, another Nagarjuna, who was a, a Mahasiddha. And Nagarjuna does a deal with him, and uh, he manages to get a sample of Amrita in exchange for a magic sandal. Hmm. He won't give him both magic sandals. He's got to use one to get home with. But he he gives him a single magic sandal, and Viali gives him the secret of Amrita. Later in the, uh, this is usually this is the the last tale in the eighty four Mahasiddhas, but it it obviously comes before certain other tales because in the the story of Arya Deva, who is a student of Nagarjuna, he, he, he Arya Deva comes across Amrita himself. He 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 is asked by Nagarjuna to to show the power of this Amrita, and he he throws it onto a dead bush, which bursts into to leaf, and it comes to life again. So yeah, there's um I forgot what the question was now. Oh well, I was asking about the I guess the connections with alchemy, oh, Western right. alchemy. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There there's there, there are some curious illustrations from the the late middle ages about alchemy which if you are attuned to the the symbolism becomes quite obvious that that they're talking about something similar to amanita muscaria and whether it is or not i can't say but it it certainly looks as though that was a definite possibility for the philosopher's stone or whatever that yeah. They, that yeah. they made yeah and that's kind of what i was thinking about was you know one what really prompted me was the peacock tails and i know that oh yeah and some at least one alchemical treatise the peacock tails sign of a specific alchemical state but also this elixir of immortality i was kind of connecting to the philosopher's stone 
And I wish I remembered the name, but I recently watched a video about a, I guess it was the discovery of an alchemical text that gave the process of creating the philosopher's stone. And it was based on urine. And we know Uh, that with Amanita Muscaria, that that's actually been a practice because the liver filters out certain properties and it makes it more kind of potent, right? It does more than filter it. The the liver actually converts ebotenic acid into muscimol. Okay. And so one of the things, one of the, the, the problems with the eating Amanita muscaria is that it contains ebotenic acid, which is mm. slightly psychoactive, but mostly poisonous. Mm. And I have, I have a friend who swears by Amanita muscaria and doesn't like psilocybin because it, it puts him in a, in a bad way. He, he just spends the next four or five hours contemplating the, uh, the problems of mankind, yeah. uh, whereas Amanita Muscaria puts him in the divine realms. Mm-hmm. And he says that you must, absolutely must, drink your urine. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can put it in the fridge first <laughs> but to, to get it to the required temperature, but he says it actually tastes quite delicious. But, which is probably some of the monosodium glutamate from the amanita affecting the, the your taste buds. Mm-hmm. But yes, he says that it's that if you want to trip on on amanita muscaria properly, then you should wait till like forty five minutes or an hour after you've taken it to have to urinate and then save that and drink it like a, a, a hour and a half, two hours into the trip, and you will have a much more profound experience. Mm. Myself, I've only taken Amanita muscaria once, and I didn't drink my urine, yeah. as I've never heard of it at that point. Right. But right. he says that it's essential. Mm. I think I'll stick with the psilocybin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I was just saying possible points of connection when I was reading the book and some of the things that you were saying in regards to this, you know, the Amrita and you, you did mention, you know, Indian alchemy a few times. And I was just seeing connections with the Western alchemical tradition, Uh, you know? Yes. They're they're definitely there. The connections may have been ancient, but the, 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 they've definitely left some clues for us. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would say that it's a rich place of investigation that research yeah. still needs to be done. So maybe, maybe I need to brush off my Sanskrit and get to work. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Well, I know that we've been talking for quite a while, so and it's getting to be late in the evening. I'm sure that you want to get dinner. So I'm sure that there are a lot of places that we could still talk about, but I think we'll wrap this up and I'm just going to ask you, what do you have coming up next? Well, I have a lot of uh, interviews coming up, but I I have nothing special that I can uh, tell your, your your viewers, except that perhaps, and I, I fully intend to do this, 
I could have a, a meeting at my farm. I have a farm, 20-acre farm in Trinity County. And I think I'll, when the weather's better, it's, it's still covered with snow at the moment. But um, when the weather is a bit more clement, I think I should open the place up to people who would want to spend a, a weekend getting the teachings and perhaps also taking some Amrita. I think I would probably have to go for something legal mm, yeah. and, and not exactly mushrooms, maybe yeah. some kind of mushroom, yeah. but well, it can't be um, the anything illegal. Right. Well, California is working on, it was going through the, the, the government, I'll just say that, to legalize or at least decriminalize psychedelics. Absolutely, so, yes. You know, uh, and you know. I don't know what's <laughs> happened to that. It was shelved for a while. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what the state of it is now, but given that Colorado recently decriminalized them, or at least psilocybin, and I don't know if it was all psychedelics. I think it just may have been psilocybin. Maybe it was just the plant. So maybe it would have included ayahuasca. But, you know, if the way that it's been working is Colorado for some reason, Colorado does it first and then California follows suit. <laughs> so so well, maybe. Uh, I've just, I've just thought that I, I know of a, um, of a church in Oakland, which uses both um, cannabis and psilocybe mushrooms yeah. which is allowed in oakland right yeah uh, as the city of oakland has said that uh, they they will allow any plant psychedelic right so it's possible that i may i may have this um this session with psychedelics and buddhism in oakland under the auspices of this church yeah yeah and i i liked that in especially in psychedelic buddhism i liked the approach that you took where the first part was kind of about psychedelics for buddhists and then the second half was buddhism for psychonauts and i really appreciated the towards the end of it where you made the suggestion of having your psychedelic session as a kind of ritual of sorts or a ceremony. Uh -huh. And I, I really appreciated that. And that's actually one of the things I was going to say. You also talk about set and setting. And one of the things that you note is like, well, yes, you can do this at home, but also out in nature. And that's always, you know, something that is recommended to be out in nature. And you mentioned hiking. And with that, you talked about visualization, but also using a mantra. And I just wanted to share that this is psychedelic free, but I would hike every Friday. I always called it my spiritual practice. And I would often chant when I would hike. I would usually do Om Mani Padme Hum. And uh, I always found that really, I don't know, it was an interesting experience to just be out hiking and chanting. But I also like the suggestion that you had a visualization. And so if my trail ever reopens, I want to try that and try to visualize myself, maybe circumambulate a bode knot in Kathmandu or something and see, see what that does. 
But yeah, I definitely appreciated the recommendations that you had in the book. And I liked the way that you set it up. And I liked the scholarship in Secret Drugs of Buddhism. Um, it's a really solid work. Thank you. Yeah. So Lama Mike, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. It's um, been fun. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we'll speak again sometime. I hope so. Yes. Wonderful. All right. Well, thank you so much. And that's a wrap on episode 81 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you're a part of my YouTube audience or viewed this on Spotify. If you like what I do here on Rebel Spirit Radio and would like to support my work, then please consider becoming a patron. You can find the link for the Patreon in the show notes or the video description. And of course, if you prefer to make just a one-time donation, you can still do so via PayPal. I will be incredibly grateful for any support that you can provide. Another way that you can help with the podcast is to share it with friends, family members, coworkers, anyone that you think will enjoy it. And please share it on social media too. That really is one of the best ways you can help and support the podcast. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, and I sure hope that you do, then please, by all means, help share the good news. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. And please subscribe. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to or viewing Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.